Good morning. It's really good to be here. Um, so a quick word about this, because otherwise I, don't, I might be distracting. So um, I got in a bike accident uh, with my family um, about two weeks ago where I was on my bike and then very suddenly not on my bike um, from a pothole. And so it could have been worse, but I did tear a ligament in my wrist. So I'll be wearing this thing for the next four weeks now. Um, and so I, as I preach, I talk a lot with my hands. You're going to see this thing waving at you quite a bit. So I, I didn't want that to be a distraction. That's what this is. All right, well, it is, it, it does feel good to me. And as Pastor David said, we've been, uh, my family has been a part of this church for the last two and a half years-ish, um, but a good year of the, well, the last 18 months of that have been, um, you know, during the pandemic and not here. So it feels really good to me to be back here again, back worshiping with you all back in this room. Um, it, it just, it feels good. And, and that's really been true of anything throughout the pandemic that has felt like normalizing, like anything that I've been able to experience that has felt like, okay, this is a return to life before. Like this is a return to anything, little things, little silly things. Like the first time that my family felt safe to go on a walk, I was like, this feels good just to, to, to do something that feels more like life as I remember it. And, um, and it feels like in the ways that we've been living this, that this feels like it's been going on forever and it has been a long time. But when I think about it, 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 it's only been like 18 or 19 months. So in the scheme of things, it's not that long ago before we weren't exposed to any of this. That even the words that we use, words about like vaccines and masks and herd immunity and whatever words that you might be using in your, like those are small talk conversations now, like with the people I work with. And, and those things that have become normalized, um, that just 18 or 19 months ago was not, for me personally, not on my radar at all. That I, I just wasn't thinking about what would it be like to live in a pandemic? How would I experience that? What would that be? And, and actually, the, the, the week of quarantine started, just three days prior to that, um, I was hanging out with my sister. We went out to dinner, and then we went to go see a play in the theater that had like 200-plus people, many of them 60 years old plus, because that's who sees theater usually. And, and nobody was wearing masks. And, it, and that is unthinkable to me, to me now, to imagine... A life where we're doing that, but but it wasn't really that long ago. And and then just three days after that evening, the entire world changed. Quarantine started, and we were asked to go figure out what does life look like now. What are what are what are the new rituals? What are the ways that we're supposed to live? What is the way to keep yourself safe? What's okay? What's not okay? Do we have to wear masks or not? Is it okay to be inside with somebody? Is it okay to be outside with somebody? Um, do, do we have to wipe down everything that comes in our house with disinfecting wipes? I have a friend from college who, um, he took an approach early on that anything that came in the house, they either disinfected or they threw in a room that no one was allowed to touch for two weeks to like try and kill off whatever was happening. And, like, maybe that's on the more conservative end, but the point is all of us, we're just trying to figure out what are we supposed to do? What is life look like now? And it was during that time especially, this is still true now for me, but especially then, especially in those first couple weeks, that the thing that I found most comforting is knowing what I could trust and who I could trust. Knowing what is the truth about what's happening now? What is the truth about what's real? What do I have to care about? What don't I need to care about? But directly related to that was who was the person who was telling me that? Where was that information coming from and could I trust that source? And so there were 
those early weeks, there was tons of articles floating around. People were forwarding me stuff on social media. And I was doing something that, like, isn't part of my normal, I don't know, consumption of information. Is I would read something, and then I'd be like, who wrote this? And I would go back and look and see, okay, who is this coming from? And full bias and transparency. I have an engineering background, so I have a bias towards science and data, probably too much. And so if, if the person was an epidemiologist or if it was a doctor or somebody from the CDC, I was like, okay, I, I, I take this in differently. There's a different authority that this has for me because of who it's coming from. Versus if it was like a blogger or a journalist or a social scientist, nothing, no offense to any of those people. But, but I was like, well, I don't, I don't know how you're getting at this. I just don't know what the basis is for what, why you're telling me this thing that I'm supposed to do or not do. And so, and, and that makes sense to me as I think about it, that, that especially for something like this, where it is the safety of myself, the safety of my family, the people I love, that especially for those really important things, Knowing who and what we can trust is so important. And, and so that, that gets me thinking about then how we think about our relationship with God. And, and how we think about, okay, how does a relationship with God work? And what's important and what's not important? What are the, what are the factors that affect that or, or could help or hurt that? And, and in that too, it, it occurs to me that knowing who we can trust, who actually has truth about that that we can trust that speaks into that, and what we can trust are so important. And so we turn to scripture for answers to those questions. And so the passage that we have today is from Mark chapter 7. And so just to kind of catch us up in Mark, just to get us up to where we are in chapter 7, um, that in Mark, uh, what we've seen so far is that Jesus has been born, and Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee. And so as he starts his ministry, um, he calls disciples to himself, and then he, he begins uh, to teach and preach boldly. That, and teach and preach with an authority that is uncommon to what is true at the time, and, and, and saying things that are sort of shaking up the, the religious norms. And also doing miracles, performing amazing he- healing miracles, um, casting out demons. And, and so Jesus is doing these radical, miraculous things. And, and what we see in Mark, a, a trend that we see, is the reaction of people to what Jesus is doing and saying. And that there are really kind of two reactions we see. One is people who are amazed. That, that word amazed keeps coming up. People are amazed at what they're seeing, amazed at what they're encountering. And, and those people are just gathering, just wanting to be closer to Jesus, wanting to understand, all right, what's going on here? What's this guy about? How is he doing this? What is, what is he teaching? What is it? And then the other reaction we see is that of the religious authorities, and that these were the overseers, the, the kind of protectors of, of the religious norms, the religious way of life that, that the Jewish people were following. And that their reaction to this radical teaching that's coming outside of what what they've been um, proclaiming is opposition and rejection. That there are moments of of confrontation that these people have with Jesus as he teaches something or does something. And they say, hey, 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 what are you doing? Like, that is not how we do things. That That is not the way that this is supposed to go. And so by the time we get to Mark 7, there's already been, I mean, the, Jesus' time of ministry hasn't been that long. There have already been two or three instances of these kinds of confrontations that have happened. And it is that kind of confrontation that we also see in Mark 7, this time around the issue of purity. So just a few words on purity, and then we're going to jump into the scripture. Um, so background on me, um, I, didn't, I did not grow up in the church. I didn't become a Christian until I was uh, 21. 
And so when I hear the word purity, um, at least part of me hears it through the lens of, of sort of my pre-knowing God life. And so I hear it as, as sort of like just moralism. I, I hear p- the idea of purity as sort of like good behavior like and a measure of how good are you doing or not good, and, and, and that's a measure of purity. And all of those things are entailed in a biblical understanding of purity, the idea of moral behavior, the idea of our behavior affecting our purity. But the idea of purity is actually much bigger than just sort of moralism. It is actually a fundamental character of God, that God, God's self is pure. And what that means is that God is free of blemish, God is free of mistake, God is free of evil or distortion, that the, the, the essential character of God is to be pure. And so in order for us to be in the presence of God, in order for us to be in connection and relationship with God, that we must also achieve purity, because that nothing impure can be in connection with God who is pure. And so there needs to be an answer for that. There needs to be an answer for, okay, well, what, what, what is the answer for how we can maintain a purity that allows us to be in the presence of God? And so what I want us thinking about when you hear the word purity, whatever associations you might have with that word, in the context of what we'll read, I want us to be thinking about it in terms of the means of relationship. That, that purity is a means of relationship to God. And so when you hear the word purity in this passage, or you hear the word defilement, which is kind of taking away of purity, all of that being our understanding of how do we relate to God, what affects our relationship with God, and how we do that. So we will be reading from Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 8, then 14 and 15, and finishing with 20 through 23. The Pharisees and some some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And then in verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowds to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. My message for us today is this. Know that what actually creates distance in our relationship with God comes from within ourselves. That there are are many things that can claim authority or can claim to be a, a factor that affect our relationship with God. But that ultimately, the authority that we are to trust is God, God's self. 
and that what God says is that the things that can, can separate us, the thing that create distance, actually come from our own hearts. Now, that might feel like a pretty heavy, burdensome message. Um, and, and it is true as we explore this and as we study this that there is personal responsibility for us in that. There is, there is um, conviction that we are to have about that. But it is actually quite a hopeful message, which you might be like, yeah, right? But, but if you stick with me, if you're skeptical now, stick with me. Um, I, I believe we'll get there. So in order for us to understand this, what I brought up earlier I think is so important and, and really laid out in the way the passage is laid out is who can we trust and what can we trust to tell us about what's important about our relationship with God? How do we understand that? What affects that? And so starting, with, starting first with who we can trust. That God is the ultimate authority that we are to trust when it comes to defining what affects a relationship with God. And that, like I said, there are a lot of things, that, a lot of ideas, a lot of people, a lot of places that you could, you could say, okay, these are the things that are important. This is what it looks like to be a follower of God. These are the things that matter. Lots of things or people or ideas could, could lay claim to that. And in this case, what we see in verse 5, that the religious authorities are laying a claim to the authority of tradition. That if, if you notice closely that um, what the religious authorities are accusing Jesus' disciples of is, is not actually breaking Old Testament law. They're, they're not saying you actually broke the, the, the law of God. What they did is, what, and what they're accusing them of, is to say you walked away from our traditions. You walked away from the way that we do things. And what is also important for us to know is that this behavior that's being described, this washing of hands, there actually is a provision for that in Old Testament law. But the scope of that was limited to priests, who it's a ritual purity issue where they they are to wash their hands before they offer sacrifice to God to ensure that that sacrifice is found worthy to be in the presence of God. And so what we see here is, is the traditions that, that came from the elders and from and upheld by these religious authorities is adding on to the, the law of God. And it, and, it, and it is an application of how to understand that. And the thing about that is that's not bad. It's, it's needed. It's actually good. It's what we do. When we come here every Sunday and we talk about, it's not like, I, I have often wished this is true, it's like we can look in the back of the Bible and there's an index that says, in this exact situation, with this kind of thing, here's what God thinks and what you should do. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know if it gets up to God, but that's not how it works. That instead we have to figure out, okay, we have been given truth through Scripture. God has revealed God's self to us through scripture and, and through prayer and through, through the body of Christ, but that it is then for us to say, how do we contextualize that? How do we apply that to any situation? In the era that we live today, which is very different than in the Bible, what, what does it mean for us? What do we do with this? That's basically what we do every Sunday. And you can name that, the, the sort of norms, the way that we understand it, and then the way that we apply it as a church, that's essentially tradition. That is the traditions that they created. And so the ways that the Israelites created these traditions, it's not that they were trying to do something evil or to divert away from God, that they were just trying to define the limitations and say, how do we build enough safeguards so that we don't violate the God, God's law? So the, the idea of tradition, the creation of that, inherently in of itself is not a wrong thing, it's not a bad thing, it's not what Jesus speaks against. The problem is, is the way in which they are, the, the religious authorities are looking to apply that. Because the authority that they are giving those traditions is to say, 
hey, if you are really one of us, if you are a true person of God, it needs to look like this. If you're not doing these things, you're, you're a fake. You're not really part of what we are part of. We are the true people of God, and you're not because you're, it doesn't look like the way that we are expecting it to look. And it is that granting of that authority of tradition, that authority of a standard of expectation that Jesus so heavily condemns. That there is a unique authority and character to what comes from God. And, and that character requires and calls us to be obedient, calls us to follow, calls us to adhere to this is what came from God. Any time we start to take something that we created and say, this is that same character, you have to follow this, we are off course and in trouble. And so it is this behavior that Jesus is condemning. And, and related to that is the reason, I think part of the reason and why Jesus calls these people hypocrites is because when we start to do that, we start to place too much emphasis on following the rules rather than on the heart of God. That it becomes about the external. It becomes about what it looks like rather than saying, what is the true heart of God and how are we staying anchored in that? So the ultimate authority in which we must follow must be that of God and God alone. And, and in that, that we are pursuing and always seeking and always remaining anchored and coming back to, what is the heart of God in this thing? And if we think about the whole point of purity, the whole, the whole reason for the purity laws and what we see continuing here, it is that we may, through, through these laws, through, through obedience to Christ, that we might more reflect God's character and God's glory. That that is the output that can, that can come from being obedient to God. And that's not going to come from something we invent. That we will never, never get to reflecting the character of God and the glory of God if it's the stuff that we make up. It is only from what God hands down to us that we can get to that place and thank God that he gives it to us. And so there are a couple ways for us to think about the... I think the warning and the danger of this, of making sure that the who we are trusting is always God. And one of those ways is, is as we think about the broader American church, of which we are a part. And, and any, any notion, uh, any, any movement towards thinking of, well, to be part of the American church is to equate American values to that of being God's values. We, we are in dangerous territory if we start to do that. And so if anyone says, oh, well, to be a Christian, it means that you need to also be embracing this. You need to be embracing American exceptionalism. You need to be embracing capitalism. You need to be embracing nationalism or patriotism. We are off course in the ways that those are ideologies that they may hold value and they may even in some places overlap with the values of God. But they are not from God and not the same thing and not of the same requirement of obedience. And particularly when we think about the fact that because they are humanly created, there is inherent brokenness. And we think about the ways those systems have been used to exploit or marginalize or discriminate against people groups, especially black people. And, and, to th and then if we return to that idea that the whole point of this is to return to the heart of God, that we may more accurately and properly reflect the glory of God, we are never going to get there if we tie ourselves to these systems that have roots in white supremacy. So we must be vigilant to protect against any overlap to suggest that those two things are the same. 
And so it is right for us to pray for the broader American church, that we may find unity, even for the parts that feel like way off from where we are, that, that we would seek unity to be anchored in God to God alone. If we do that, we will get there. God is the unifier, and if we do that, we will get there. And it is also right for us to talk to those with whom we're in relationship. And if we see them veering towards that tendency, see them veering towards any notion of that, is to ask questions and to challenge lovingly, to say, this is the danger, you are venturing into a dangerous place, and to speak to them about that. But another way for us to think about that, to bring it kind of a level to to our church, is that there can be a tradition or an expectation, um, a standard of expectation as it relates to churches like ours, to multi-ethnic churches. I've been uh, part of a few multi-ethnic churches before I joined this church, and I've, I've visited others. And it occurs to me that there can be a standard of expectation of what it means to be a multi-ethnic church, that what it means is you show up on Sunday, there's a lot of different people that look different than you and come from different backgrounds, we worship together, and that is what it is to be a multi-ethnic church, sort of end of story. And that is, not a, that's, that is a beautiful, glorious thing. I love that we get to do that. And I will confess that there have been times, especially in the past, where where I have been satisfied with that. Satisfied with that is our standard. That is what it is to be a multi-ethnic church. But it is in this place especially that we must return to the heart of God. That we see that the heart of God, the biblical witness, is that we are to seek true unity in the body. And that that unity can only come from true reconciliation and seeking justice together, hand in hand. That anything short of that is to not seek after the heart of God. And, but the thing about that is it requires a lot of self-reflection. It requires humility. It requires going to deep places, especially speaking to the white and Asian folks. And I speak from my own experience. It requires asking for forgiveness in certain places where you've participated, either knowingly or unknowingly, in acts of white supremacy. It it requires repentance. It requires being willing to go to the hard place, the awkward place, the messy place, going in relationship with one another, going much deeper than we can get to in just a Sunday to go after that unity of God. And the thing about that is it is hard. It is hard. Anybody who participated in the Truth and Love groups earlier this year, which was seeking to do essentially this, knows that it is hard to keep going back to that well. It is hard to keep going back to where are the places where I play a role in this? How have I been affected by this? And to to constantly go back where there is often hurt, where there is disconnection, where there is brokenness, to go back to that is hard work. And if it were only up to us, if it were only up to what we would expect, I don't think we would stay, stay in that fight. It is only if we are anchored in the authority of God that we seek to go after that, even in the places where we feel desperate, where we feel tired, where we feel frustrated, where it can feel like we can't see progress at all. It is, it is holding true to the authority of God to say, God is working in this, God is called to this, and we will be obedient. Let that be our worship. And in that worship, may we be found, may our worship be found worthy to God, and may we do the things that we talked about. May we collectively, as a body, reflect the character and glory of God, which we're never going to get there unless we do it together in the way that God intended through the body of Christ. And so that is who we are to trust. We are to stay in the authority of God 
as, as the authority that we are to trust when it comes to a relationship with God. And then we turn to what Jesus has to say about what we are to trust. And what we are to trust is that what actually creates distance in our relationship with God and our relationship with one another originates in our own hearts. And we see that in verses 15 and 21. And this idea of heart that's described here, that is the central part of the identity of me and of you and any individual. It is the thing that makes you, you. It is the part of you that is the emotional, spiritual, intellectual center, the part that makes decisions, the part that has will and has desires, and ultimately the part that then forms relationships with other people. That that is the heart that God is talking about, the, the very essential, central part of each one of us. And it is from that place that God tells us, this is where brokenness comes from. This is where you are defiled. This is where sin can originate. And what we see then in the list in verse 21 is there's kind of this overarching headline of evil thoughts. And that's kind of the, the, there's a whole bunch of ideas in that list. But the common tie to all of them is this idea of like evil thoughts, evil desires, evil plans. The the evil that can come from our own hearts that we do. And the thing about that list, there's a list of 12 things, and I'm not going to go through all of them individually, but what I think is worth noting is that in that list, the first six things are acts. They are things that you might do. But the second six are elements of character. They're elements of desires or want. And so in reading this list the first time, I found this, to be frank, pretty discouraging. Because if it was just a list of, like, here's the stuff you're not supposed to do. Here's, like, the no list. Well, in my mind, which this is obviously not accurate, but in my mind, it's like, okay, well, if I know what I'm not supposed to do, then I can just build in discipline. I can build in systems of accountability. I can just build in routine. And I'm just going to avoid those things, and then I'll be good. I'll be meeting the standard. But if included in this standard that Jesus is laying out is not only the things we choose to act on, but the very desire that comes from your heart, the very thought, the very rea- think about any reaction you have where someone says something you don't like and, and you have a, a moment, an impulse, a desire of something you know, evil, so, something that, that, that would distort. If the standard is that those things are included, what chance do any of us have of meeting this standard? And I think that is the point. That in the very telling of what Jesus is saying here is pointing to the need for a Savior. That we will never get to these things, never be free free of these things if it is only up to our will. That we need someone, something that can actually transform us. Not just in appearance, but in actual transformation. That our hearts would be changed. And so what Jesus is actually announcing and inaugurating here is that the rule of law is ending. The rule of following the rules is no longer what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the kingdom of God. What I am saying, I meaning Jesus, what I am saying is is that this, this era is ending and because of what Jesus will do later in Mark, die on the cross for us and be resurrected, that death has been defeated. And our new expectation is one of being born again. Our new expectation is one of true new creation, that we are actually new, not just words, that we are actually transformed, actually become something new, and that we would be children of God, 
that we would be co-heirs with Christ. This is the future that Jesus is calling us to. And that in that, that as children of God, that we might experience the full freedom and joy that God intended and always wanted for us. And that that would free us to be in the type of relationship that God wants with, with God and us and us with each other. And, and this is what Jesus is calling us to. And so there is a role for us to play in that, though. That our role in that is that we can choose, but it is, it is a need to be vulnerable with God and with those that put, God puts in our life. That we need to be willing to let God into those broken, hurt places from which these types of evils can come. Something that someone said to me once that has really stuck with me is that it is often in relationship that we are wounded, but it is always in relationship that we are healed. That you cannot do it alone. That you need God, you need, we need each other. And that's not the good news, bad news, I guess, of that, is it's scary. It's hard. That dying to ourselves, dying with Christ, that those aren't just words either. That we have to die to the places in us, the, the hurts that we've reacted out of, the places that we've chosen to protect ourselves, the way we try to do it on our own. We have to actually die to that. But the prize is the freedom and joy of living with Christ. So I've experienced that in a way in my own life. That there was a season in life about 10 years ago where um, God very specifically called me into a, a season of um, emotional healing. And, and, and the way that God called me into that was through counseling. And so for a four or five year period, I was in uh, very intense uh, sort of emo- uh, individual and group counseling. And, and God was, was working through stuff that I needed to work through and God wanted to work through with me. And during that season, one of the very specific things that I felt like God lead me to was, was, was this. Was God saying, there are things that you do, there are ways that you act that are creating distance, they're creating distrust between others and with God, and, and God wanted to do something about that. So the way that, um, that I went about that was in my group counseling, and, and this was a group of people that at this point I had been with for many years, we were going to very deep places, I trusted them, was to ask them outright, what are the ways that you don't trust me fully? What are the things that I do that create separation between me and you, that create a disconnect? That was a really scary question to ask. And in, I will say in the back of my head, I, I remember this distinctly. In the back of my head, I was like, maybe they won't have anything. <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll be like, we trust you, Hana. We're good. <laughs> you're, you're good in our book. That, that's not what happened. <laughs> um, there were a number of things named faithfully and lovingly, but a number of things named. And one of the main ones was this theme around what we all ended up calling kind of a five-second delay. And so one of the ways that I choose to protect myself is that rather than just state my truth, rather than just say something bluntly or to say it unfiltered or to, to blurt out, that I sort of figure out, well, what is the right way to say that? What is the way I can say that, that, that I can make sure not to offend? Or I can make sure that nobody, no, that, that, that people won't reject me for it. And that's not overall a bad quality, but at, especially at that time of life, I, I never operated outside of that. It was, everything was like that. I, I, I never just fully sort of said, okay, here's my truth and what's going on. 
And, and this, I think, falls in that category of that list as deceit. Not intentional deceit, but deceit of not showing up with my full truth. And so what I did for the next couple of months, which, even as I say it, feels like I can't believe I did this, is that I fought against that with these people. I, I openly engage with them to say, okay, if you do something, I'm going to just blurt out my reaction. I'm going to tell you things that I, I really feel and think about you. And this was in the safety of counseling, so it's like, you know, you could, <laughs> that could cause a lot of wreckage, but here it was good. And, and as I started to do that, which, which, by the way, all of it felt foreign. All of it felt like the opposite of what I should be doing. And there are reasons for that. There are, things, there are wounds that I experienced in my growing up years that taught me it was not safe to do this. That it was not safe to just blurt out, to be honest in that way. And so I was deeply, deeply committed to a strategy of, like, you do not do this. So to do this at every moment was to do the opposite of what everything that I was telling myself and that I thought my life was telling me that I should be doing. So, but I, I, I pushed forward, and there were a number of things I learned from that. One of which was that I had way more to say to people than I was letting myself know. And that there was a freedom to allow myself to express that and to connect to that and to let myself know that and then choose to let, to let other people know that. And what is astounding to me and what is still hard for me to fully capture is that in those things that I had to say that I, that I decided were off limits, the things that I thought were too much, that these people received them and in many cases thanked me for it. That there were things that they needed to hear that they couldn't see for themselves that I observed that I could give them as a gift. Not that the gift giving wasn't messy and there wasn't talking that had to happen to make, get, get us there, but that there were real, and that from that, that we could actually get to a place of greater intimacy, greater relationship, more trust. And that the other thing I learned from this is that this thing in my life this thing that I was fully convinced that I will never be different than this. I will never not live in this way. And, and not even, like I wasn't even desiring because it was so outside the radar of what I thought would be possible. That this thing I, I was sure I needed to do to be safe. That God showed me that in whatever way I needed to be safe back then. That now I no longer need that and that God has me. And that I could live into the freedom and joy of not believing I needed this safety net and that Jesus was enough. And like I said, I, I, would have, I don't think I would have ever got there. I don't think I would have ever expected a life could be like this. If not for listening to the authority of God in my life. If not for following God into the places that I could not see. Because what's true is that it felt like the opposite of what I should do. But what's also true is that we, you and I, have a Father in heaven who loves us. And who knows our hearts better than we will ever know it ourselves. And, and sees the ways that we have been hurt and the ways that we act out of that hurt. And the ways that that then separates us from God and from one another. But God also is good and able and and comes alongside us to transform those places so in the very places that we are creating separation, God can transform that so that we may live into more freedom and joy. Know that what actually creates distance in our relationship to God comes from within ourselves. But know also that God's desire is to transform us 
that we may experience more joy and freedom if we are willing. So I'd like to just end with um, a time of prayer. So if you'll join me now in prayer. Hmm. Jesus, we are grateful. We thank you, God, that um, no matter what's happening within ourselves or outside of ourselves, that we know who we can trust. That, God, you are always there, always good, always looking to bring us more freedom and more joy. So, God, would you keep us in that place? And, Lord, even in the places that, that from our brokenness we create distance from you and create distance from one another, would you show us those places? Would you give us grace and courage to press in, to see what you might do, and to risk seeing what could be better on the other side from you? And Lord, would all of this serve as, as worship to you? And, and God, I, I do feel like specifically that there, there might be some folks either in this room or listening online that, that, that this message really resonates with and, and that they feel stuck. God, that they feel stuck either in something that they are aware of or that they're, they're, they're just aware that something is getting in the way of a relationship with you or a relationship with other people, that they've seen patterns that they may not know about, but they know that they're, they're tired of it. So, God, I, I pray especially for those, if, if you feel like that's you, I pray, God, that you would come now and that you would meet those people. That you would be showing them even a glimpse just right now of your truth and your goodness. And you would be giving them hope towards the greater that you have for them. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.